So what's the best fresh bread you've ever had? Can you remember? Remember where you were, where you were eating? Remember what you were wearing? Did, did, you, did you put butter on it? If you did not, just keep that to yourself. You know, don't, don't say that out loud. You don't want to confess that anywhere. My best fresh bread moment is pretty fresh because it was, it was last week. And I have no idea what this butter sauce was that they put on the bread. I just know that it took about 90 seconds for me to look like a one-year-old at my birthday party eating cake with both hands. It was just, it was everywhere. And it was fantastic. So good. So this week there's a new cookbook series being released and it's on bread. The series has been authored by Chef Nathan Mirvold and Chef Francisco Magoya. Now, Mirvold also was once the chief technology officer at Microsoft. He also has a PhD from Princeton in theoretical and mathematical physics. He also has co-sponsored more than 500 patents on inventions. So naturally, he'd write a cookbook on bread. You know, that, that would make sense, right? I'm pretty sure that he is in the running for the most interesting man in the universe now. New York Times journalist Tejul Rowe recently described her in-kitchen interview with Chef Magoya, and this is a, just a portion of her description, and I'll apologize. This is really mean, but it makes a point. After Mr. Magoya baked his wheat lacoche sourdough, it had a hard, dark, crackling crust. This is where it gets mean, okay? He used a piping bag fitted with a flat tip to squeeze a generous amount of butter down the middle of each slice. Man. The bread was the deep gray of wet pavement, and the crimped ribbon of mole butter was bright red. Man, she can write. It had an intense, satisfying crunch and chew and an elaborate rush of heat and tang that carried on long after the last bite. It was familiar, but also entirely new. I would eat with her anywhere if she's going to describe the food like that. But I love what Chef Magoya said as she was enjoying this moment. This was his response. Bread and butter. It's only bread and butter. But isn't that what's just great? Because what I think what he's saying is this. This simply amazing thing that she was eating is simply simple. It's just, it's just bread and butter. I want to offer you something today that's incredibly simple. And it's a gazillion times more amazing than the freshest bread from the most world-renowned bakery. In fact, this is something that is intense, it is satisfying, and just like her description, it has an elaborate rush of heat and tang for your soul. And it's something that cannot, under any circumstance, ever lose its flavor, and it can never fade away. That sounds pretty, pretty good. So, so what is it? Well, let's find out. Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 20. And again, Jesus said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? So Jesus is at church. He has just miraculously healed a woman who has been stooped over in severe pain for 18 years. 
And so in the same moment that this precious woman is healed, that she's able to stand up, that she has no more pain, in the same moment that she's healed, there's a church leader, and the church leader rebukes Jesus for healing her. So the church leader says, look, you know, that kind of stuff can't happen on a church day, right? The bylaws say that needs to come through a committee, and then we're going to vote on it at the next church conference. You are out of order, sir. What you're doing is, is wrong. So how does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus points out that the church leader, along with so many other people in the room, that they took their donkeys out to get some water. And they would do that on a church day. So Jesus asks a pretty simple question. He says, so, so let me get this right. So it's okay to take care of your thirsty donkey on a church day, but it's not okay to take care of this precious crippled woman on a church day. Now, of course, everybody in the room, they, they got the math, right? I mean, they knew that was bad math. That, that was not something that should go together. But Jesus didn't want them just to have bad math in their mind. He wanted them to know there was some good math. There was some great math. He wanted the, them to consider this, this new math, so to speak. But it was also hard math. It was math that if you were only going to listen to it with your ears, you, you weren't going to get it. And so he starts this new math discussion with a question. So what's the kingdom of God like? What could I compare it to? Now, if you're in the room, you need to understand this is a big question, okay? Imagine, if you will, that you live in a tiny house. Now, I'm not talking about one of the new cool HGTV, you design your own tiny house. I'm talking about like the original tiny house, you know, the ones that have been around forever and ever and ever in these little blocks in different places. And this particular tiny house, it has the convenience of having the kitchen and the bedroom and the bathroom and the den all in one room. So everything's right there together for you. And your front window, it opens up to the back wall of the steel mill train yard that sits next to the airport across the street from the rock quarry. So you have a really fantastic neighborhood, really quiet place for you to live in your little one-room tiny house. But then your great-uncle, Roscoe Purvis Coltrane, he, he made millions of dollars in the custom fashion dog-collar design business. And of all of his millions, he ended up buying a castle in Europe. And great-uncle Roscoe dies and leaves you the castle. <laughs> That's serious, right? Can you imagine the flight over to your new crib? Well, you're, you're thinking, how many rooms does this thing have? Does it, does it have a bowling alley downstairs? Is, is there a, a moat that converts into a lazy river? You know, do, do I have a chef who will pipe butter into fresh bread anytime I want it? I mean, your, your mind would be rolling. What is this castle going to be like? Well, if you were in church that day with Jesus and you heard him say, what's the kingdom of God like? In your mind, you're thinking, man, I live in that tiny house. Yeah, I've got freedom, but, it, but it's freedom underneath Roman rule. I have to deal with difficult Roman laws, and I have to deal with difficult Roman politicians, and there's difficulties with Roman soldiers out in the street. But there's some stories you heard about. Your parents had talked about it. Your grandparents had talked about it. You had heard the pastors talk about it. There was this kingdom this kingdom that, that God had promised, this kingdom that God was going to bring. And every time you heard the stories about the kingdom of God, even if you just heard the words the kingdom of God, you would start thinking, I can't wait to get out of my tiny house and get into this kingdom castle that God is going to build. 
And so these folks would have really dialed into this moment that Jesus says, hey, what's the kingdom of God like? And so what does Jesus say the kingdom of God is like? Well, this is what he says in verse 21. It is like leaven. <laughs> leaven. 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 These folks, they, they were thinking some macho general was going to swoop down and conquer the Roman Empire and, and take over, and he was going to be this new charismatic leader that was going to fix everything. He was going to fix the economy. He was going to fix the health care system. He was going to fix the tax system. Boy, this was going to be a new day. They're thinking about a kingdom, and Jesus, Jesus is talking about leaven. He ain't talking about a kingdom. He's talking about leaven. What in the world is leaven? Well, leaven is yeast. It's something that you add to dough to, to make it rise. So you're in this room. You hear Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, and you're thinking, boy, finally, some financial freedom, some religious freedom, some cultural freedom, finally, finally some freedom. And Jesus is talking about making bread. But he had more to his description. Listen to the rest of verse 21. It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. <laughs> well, that makes it so much better, right? So there's not going to be a macho general in the kingdom of God. There's going to be some no-name woman making bread. I mean, the people were probably really confused. The disciples were probably confused. You know, they're probably over on the side, and, and Thaddeus turns to Bartholomew, and he says, you know, Mama told me not to come. You know, I, I probably shouldn't have come. Leaven, yeast. How are you going to conquer the Roman Empire with leaven? The rolling pin is not mightier than the sword, no matter how you do the math. And outside of Jimmy Panera, who wants a kingdom of leaven? Who wants a kingdom of yeast? This is crazy talk. And these people were wanting hope. They were wanting something exciting. But there's more to this leaven than meets the eye. I've shared a description of leaven before with you from Julie Douglas, and I want to share it again just because it's just fun. So here's a little picture of, of yeast and, and leaven and the activity. It's teeming with organic chemical activity, a veritable fireworks display of fermentation and leavening. The yeast cells break down large starch molecules into sugars for energy. The sugars digested by the yeast burp out carbon dioxide and ethyl alcohol into existing air bubbles in the dough, and this causes the dough to rise. In the meantime, while you're working with the dough, these bubbles of carbon dioxide and alcohol, they burst, allowing for two proteins in the flour, glutenin and gliadin, to glom onto water particles. I don't know what glom means. I just like saying it out loud. And then she said this, as they tango, they become an elastic-like mass of molecules known as gluten. And the more gluten, the stronger your bread becomes. Sorry for you gluten-free people. I don't know how that works for, for the gluten stuff. But she goes on. And the more it can act as a dome to keep in the symphony of organic chemicals that cause the dough to exponentially rise. And all of this results in the delightful crater-like terrain of the finished product. <laughs> that's yeast. That's leaven. All right, so we've got fireworks, we've got a tango, and we've got a symphony bursting with delight. All right, now that's kingdom stuff, right? I mean, that's some, that's some fun kingdom-type language. That's something we could get into. And where does, where does all of this come from? Well, it comes from something super, super small. 
if I have all of my scientific research right, a, a yeast cell is about three to four micrometers in diameter. And just to give some perspective, it's said that a, a strand from a spider web is about four to five micrometers wide. So we're, we're talking about something super small. All right, and if you're a teacher, do not check any of the math that you're about to hear from me, all right? Because I'm using Dow Math, and Dow Math is I'm going to show all of my work. It's going to look good. It's going to look correct. My final number on the Scantron may not be the right thing, but we'll get there, okay? So let's just imagine that we're using, you know, maybe an 8-inch bread pan. So the picture is that this one yeast cell could be part of making a loaf of bread that's 200,000 times bigger than it is. That's big. That's, That's huge. But just to kind of bring this out a little more, let's imagine in a different time frame here, a different picture. So Michigan Stadium is where the Wolverine football team plays. So, of course, I got out of the SEC and the ACC for this illustration. I hope you know. I mostly did it for Rob, and really I did it for Rob's dad, who usually listens to the sermon. So, Mr. B, if you're listening, this is for you. So you have Wolverine football. You have Michigan Stadium. It seats about 107,000 people, a little more, okay? So imagine if you had two Michigan stadiums, and then I sat down in one of those stadiums, and then I ate enough bread to get big enough to fill every seat of both of those stadiums. All right? The scary thing is I might could pull that off. So, so the picture begins to you know, hopefully get better here with this math that, that we're talking about something really small that, that turns into something huge and gigantic. And that's important because there's more to this leaven than meets the eye. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate. It's almost as if he's trying to help me and you. He's trying to help his disciples. He's trying to help the people that were following him. He's kind of giving them a cheer. And the cheer is, don't look for the big sanctuary. Don't look for the big stadium. Don't look for the big building. Look look for something smaller. Look for someone smaller. And who would that someone be? That someone would be him. On another day, Jesus said this very clearly and with no confusion. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So so Jesus declared himself to be the only way to God. Now listen, that is one of the, the main reasons why so many folks in the world will call Christianity you know, bigoted or exclusive or narrow-minded or, or hateful. But the reality is these are not words we made up. You know, we, we weren't trying to create a, a social club where every now and then we did some good things, and so we came up with a motto that would be so narrow and, and so exclusive. These are the words of Jesus. So we are, we are waiters, we are waitresses, we are, we are getting divine truth that we passionately believe in, that we put our faith in, but all of that truth has been designed and created by the only everlasting eternal chef. And so we're supposed to deliver that truth. But how are we supposed to deliver it? This is what Paul said, that we're supposed to speak the truth in love. We are supposed to be working hard to be winsome. That's a good word. Just We're supposed to be loving and winsome. Look, we're not always going to be loving and winsome. 
okay? Sometimes you may be the kind of person you're going to be nothing until you have a cup of coffee. You know, that, that may be how you function, you know? So we're not always going to be loving and winsome. But as believers, we need to be striving to be. It needs to be part of who we are. And why? Well, this truth that we have, it's hard. It is this hard truth. But it's also holy truth. It's difficult truth, but it is delightful truth. It is stinging truth, but it's also satisfying truth. And so we, we give this truth and we give it with love. And we need to be the, the kind of people that when we look at our lives, there's more affirmation than anger. There's more compassion than complaining. There's more graciousness than grumbling. There's more loving than loathing. Why? Because this truth is so clear that sometimes it's difficult to hear that Jesus is the only way and the only truth and the only life. That's the message that we have. That's the call that we've been asked to give. There's a story about a missionary that got lost in the jungle. I mean, deep, couldn't find anywhere, and, and he stumbled up on a little hut, and he went in the hut, and there was a man in the hut, and he asked the man, hey, any way you could get me out of the jungle? And the man said, yeah, sure. And so they left, and they started just, you know, hacking through the brush and, and making their way, and they'd been doing it for a while. And finally, the missionary's like, hey, look, I, you know, we've been going a long time, and, and I'm still not seeing a path. You know, we're, we're hacking, the, when are we going to get to the path? And the man laughed and looked at him. He said, out here? There is no path. I am the path. You, you need to stay with me. So with just a few small words, with just a little bit of leaven, Jesus declared himself to be the only path to God. The only path to God. But here's what makes that really interesting if we follow the rest of the life of Jesus on earth. Leon Morris put it this way. Oops, sorry. There it is. I am the way, said the one who would shortly hang impotent on a cross. Math doesn't work. Jesus, I'm the way. He's getting ready to be killed. He's getting ready to be executed on a cross. How could he be the way? I am the way, said the one who would shortly hang impotent on a cross. I am the truth when the lies of evil men were about to enjoy a spectacular triumph. I am the life when within a few hours his corpse would be placed and a tomb. This, this is bad math. What, what is Jesus talking about? And what makes the difference with that description? How is it that this little bit of leaven that Jesus gave, how did it not die in the pan? Here's why. Because Jesus did not stay in the tomb. <laughs> he is risen. He is risen indeed. Every other religious leader, every guru, every prophet that's ever died, died and stayed dead except for Jesus. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. Jesus is risen. It's the defining part of what we're communicating. There was no vague reincarnation as another person. He didn't come back as a, a pretty butterfly. Jesus came back from the dead. He rose from the grave. He was alive, and he is alive. That is our message. It's the only message we have. You know, the Jewish historians, the Greek historians, the Roman historians, they all wrote about the resurrection of Jesus. They all wrote about the evidences and the effects of the resurrection. And why did they do that? 
Well, as somebody put it, even if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, something happened after the Passover in 33 AD that completely changed the world. And we say with confidence that that something was Jesus risen and alive. And it all started with a little prophecy about a little town called Bethlehem. Just, it was just a little bit of leaven. And, and in that little town of Bethlehem, there was a little baby that was born, just, just a little bit of leaven. And that baby grew up to be a young man who was preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God for only three years. He, he didn't retire as an evangelist. He didn't re- retire as a, as a pastor just for three years, just, just a little bit of leaven. And the estimates of, of how many people were on the earth during the time of Jesus' resurrection, they're all over the place. Everything from 250,000 to, to more than 300 million. So let's just pick a number. Let's just say there was 200 million people on the planet. But only maybe less than 1,000 of them were following Jesus. And now there's more than 2 billion people who profess Christ. Just, just a little bit of leaven. He was a poor boy. He was the son of a coal miner, and he was born in a nothing town in Germany. But one day, he nailed 95 protests on the message board of the church 500 years ago this week. And his protest, he didn't know it, was a call to the world, to the gospel, and to follow Christ. And by the grace and mercy of God, the world responded. And we are sitting here this morning as a direct result of the mercy of God through Martin Luther. Just, just 95 little bits of leaven. And yet God did much. So what does all this leaven have to do with you? Well, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this leaven, it is an invitation and a warning to you. It's an invitation that Jesus really is the way and the truth and the life, and you can immediately be satisfied in him forever. It's also a warning, though, that Jesus is the only way and the only truth and the only life. And if you reject him, there is no way for you to be satisfied and there is no path for you to God without Jesus. So we would plead for you to come to Jesus today. And what if you're a believer? What does all this leaven have to do with you? Well, I would just say this. Don't ever underestimate the power of the gospel. Don't ever underestimate the power of the kingdom of God. Don't ever underestimate the power of a little bit of gospel leaven in your marriage with your kids, with your grandkids, at school, at work, in this church, in this community, in this state, in this country, in this nation, in this world, even in your own heart. Don't ever underestimate how God can use just a little bit of our gospel witness. This is what Paul said to the Philippians. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We got a lot of pregnant ladies walking around here, right? 
I hope you are doing everything you can to open doors for them and make sure they have a seat and something to drink. Whatever you need to do to help them, you're going out of your way to encourage them in word and deed. Now, it won't be too long before these dads will be texting pictures of this brand new baby that's come into their world. And I'm going to respond like this. On behalf of the church and on behalf of the association and on behalf of the state and national conventions, I would just like to take this opportunity to thank you and your wife for making the decision to have a baby. That, that's what I'm going to say to him, right? <laughs> no. I'm not going to say, I'm going to say, man, praise the Lord. And praise God that he, he fearfully and wonderfully started this. He, he began this, and, and now he's delivered this precious person, this precious life into all of our worlds. Praise the Lord. Look what God began. Look what God is finishing. See, Jesus stood up in church one day, and, and he began to talk about the kingdom of God, and he said it was like a little bit of leaven, just, just a, a little something that, that starts in the womb, and, and then it, it is born into life, into something amazing. Stephen Cole says this, the smallness of Jesus and his ragtag band of followers is no problem with regard to the worldwide spread of the gospel. The power does not depend on Jesus' followers, but on the power of God through the gospel. <laughs> That's a punch in the gut to every person who works at a church. Because <laughs> we think it all depends on us. Well, I'll just confess it for me. You know, we, we think, oh, i got to do all this stuff. The kingdom of God depends on God. The gospel and the power of the gospel depends on God. We are waiters. We are waitresses. We just say, look at this amazing, beautiful gospel that changed the world, and it can change your life, and it all happens through this little bit of leaven that gets into your mind and your heart, and then it grows into something that captures your soul with the greatest love you can imagine. But what does it have to do with your life right now, this morning, in this room. You're going to have to adjust this for whoever you are. Mom, dad, husband, wife, son, daughter, aunt, uncle, grandparent, whatever you are. But, but please listen closely to these words. Jeff Thomas writes, I can look back at my life and judge that I have been a total failure. I failed as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a preacher, as a friend, as a counselor, and I can look back and dismiss all my life as one massive failure. You might be thinking that today. So listen to the second part. Or I can do something else. I can plead his promise that he who has begun the good work, the, the little tiny leaven of work in your soul, that he who has begun the good work in my life will go on performing it until the day of Christ. God is not giving up on me. See, just, just a little bit of leaven, Jesus says is the way for you to be connected to the God of the universe. And God is not giving up because God cannot give up because God began the good work and the good work is Jesus. The good work is Jesus.
Let us come to Jesus.